Today we're going to turn to uh, God's Word as we do on the weekends, and we started a new series titled Job, Walking with God Through the Storm. And we're going to be looking at this topic of pain and suffering. You know, when we do Ask Anything Weekends, if you've been here, uh, if you haven't been here, Ask Anything Weekend, we do periodically and we distribute cards when you walk in and we say, what's your question for today? What question do you have that you'd love to have answered today? And we try to get to a biblical topic. Uh, what, what is it that you'd like to understand? And at the end of that weekend, you collect all the cards and by far the number one topic, the number one thing that people want to know is about pain and suffering. Why am I going through it, and how do I live through it, and how do I find hope in the midst of it? And so we thought it would be important that we teach on this topic for the next five weeks. You know, it's a topic that has caused religions to be birthed. It was Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, who was a Hindu, and did not like the answer that Hindus, Hinduism gave to pain and suffering, that it was the result of past lives, that something you did wrong and you were paying off your karmic debt, and that's how you came to pay for your, your pain and suffering was a payment for that karma, and he's, that didn't make sense to him. And so he took off on this trip of enlightenment, and he came to the understanding at the end of this enlightenment that really pain and suffering is an illusion, and it's of your own making. The Bible doesn't teach us that. The Bible teaches us that pain and suffering is real. You ask anyone that's gone through it, anyone that's going through it, and they will tell you it feels very real. And the Bible teaches that it is very real. But it's because we live in this world that's fallen, sinful, broken, that we experience pain and suffering. But pain and suffering doesn't have the final word. And so we're going to turn to God's word. And to do that, we're going to turn to the book of Job. It's a famous book. You don't have to even be a Bible scholar or a Christian to have heard the name Job. And to understand, Job is a man that had went under, underwent suffering in his life. And there's a great amount that we can learn from Job today, an ancient story Actually, this ancient story is really our story. Because if you live long enough on this earth, you too will experience, as you know, probably, that pain and suffering. And so we're going to turn to Job to see if we can understand from Job's perspective that we can find comfort, we can find instruction, we can find answers to this question. But as we do so, I think there are things that we need to understand about Job to help us as we try to apply this teaching into our current lives and how we try to understand better the character of God, therefore coming better to understand our own character. And that is the fact that Job is an ancient story. And it's a story set long ago. It's a story thought to be written by Moses, not by Job himself. He's the character of the story. But Job's story, we understand, is a real story. He's a real person that lived. It's not thought that this is a parable, but a man, a historical figure who lived during this time. But to understand his story, or any story within the book of Job, we must understand things from a biblical perspective. As we would approach any text that we teach, you need to understand that text within the con bigger context of the book that you find it in. And then you need to take the context of that book and place it in the context of all of Scripture to understand the truth that's being taught. Because all of Scripture tells one story, the story of God, the nature, the purpose, the will of God, and therefore it informs our story. We need to approach any story in the text from this complete biblical perspective to truly understand what the text is teaching. So I want us to keep that in mind as we go through these five weeks of Job. The thing that we need to understand about perspective, though, there's a couple of things that I think we need to see 
as we look at the text. And the first is that there are many perspectives, the first of which is ours. As we read this text, we bring to this text to understand it our own perspective, this 21st century perspective. Understanding our perspective may not be the accurate perspective. We have a different perspective than the the contemporaries of Job would have had. We see things a little different. We don't know really what it's like to have lived in Job's time. But then we also see Job's perspective. Job has a perspective that none of us have. He's the one that's going through this. He's the one that's experiencing this. But there's also something else going on here. We see that we have a perspective of this story in Job that Job himself doesn't have. We will see that we are told things as the reader that Job himself, the one going through it, is never told. And so we have a perspective that Job doesn't have, but also I would argue that Job has a perspective that we don't have. So we could, be, we could learn something from his perspective. And second, or thirdly, we see that there are others' perspectives. Job's wife and his friends, and I'm sure many bystanders that witnessed all this going on. And all of them had a perspective, and several of them were not shy about sharing that perspective with Job, as we'll see in the weeks coming up. And at the end, we see, finally, the perspective. It's God's perspective. God speaks and answers Job's question and gives Job and blows Job's perspective completely apart and gives him a much bigger perspective than he ever had anywhere in the midst or before. And so we seek to understand God's perspective, but also I think we need to understand as we go through this, we're never told everything. There are things from God's perspective that we're not told. But we also see from the story that it's not necessarily necessary that we're told everything. Just a couple more notes about perspective. All perspectives are unique. C.S. Lewis said this, what you see and what you hear depends a great deal on where you are standing. It's different if you're the one going through the pain and suffering, if you're the one experiencing it, than the person walking beside you. Two unique perspectives, or the person observing what's going on. Your perspective depends on where you are standing, or this morning, literally, where you are sitting. What we also learn about perspectives is that not all perspectives are accurate. Just because you have a perspective does not mean it's accurate. There was a little boy going through his family Bible, and he opened it up, and out from the Bible, from between its pressed pages, was this dried leaf. And he went to his mom, and he said, Mom, look what I found in the Bible. And she's like, what do you have? He says, I think it's Adam's underwear. (laughs) See, not all perspectives are accurate. But all perspectives are unique. Which finally brings us to this point that the perspective is God's perspective. God's perspective is the perfect perspective. And so he seeks to tell us and inform us throughout Scripture and throughout the book of Job the accurate, the perfect perspective of how we come to understand the answer to pain and suffering, how we can find hope in the midst of suffering. Because we can trust that God is in control that he is God and therefore much bigger than we are. Isaiah says that as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. We'll see as we encounter Job 
Job understands this and doesn't lose sight of this. He understands that God is God and he is not. And therefore, Job finds hope in the midst of suffering. And therefore, he hopes we too may find hope in the midst of suffering. I believe that is God's desire for us as we journey through Job. So let's begin. We'll dive into Job chapter 1, going about chapter 2, verse 10. I'm not going to read everything, so you can relax. I'm going to kind of paraphrase some things and uh, read some things. I'm going to be reading from the NIV version this morning. So we begin with Job chapter 1, verse 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. We see early on, this isn't a parable. It's speaking about a specific man living in a specific place at a time. And we don't know where us exactly is. It comes up twice in Scripture outside of Job. Scholars and archaeologists believe that Uz is in the north, northernmost part of Saudi Arabia, south and east of the Promised Land, but believed to be a literal place, and believe that Job is a historical figure that walked this earth and experienced what we read happened to him here in Job. But he's not the author of the book. He's the subject of the book. And we read that Job is not only just a man in the land of us, but he is the man in the land of us. He would have been the richest man. He would have been the most respected man in the land of us. He would have been known by everyone. He was the greatest man in us. And as we read, he feared God. He was a godly man. He shunned evil. He would have been considered to be like David, a man after God's own heart. And as we continue to read throughout the story, we'll learn more about Job. We'll get a better idea of who Job is. But what we read that happens next is that there's this conversation that happens outside of Job's hearing that you and I are privy to, but Job isn't privy to. The author tells us one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Now, the first time I read that, I, I just I paused for a second and reread it because you read something there that kind of throws you off. I think if you haven't read this before, you have to say, what? Satan is standing before God with the angels in heaven? How is that possible? It doesn't tell us how that's possible. What it tells us is that it happened. And what we should understand from our perspective is that what God is telling us here through the author is this is a particular instance that happens in Job. And just because it happens in Job does not necessarily mean that this is the way it always happens or this is the way that it continues to happen. But we can draw from this book that this is what happened on this day. We should not infer that this is what happens on other days in our lives. 
because we're not told that. So we need to confine this illustration to Job. But we see something strange because Satan is talking to God and God is talking to Satan. And you read and you're going, why does he bring up Job's name? Why would he call Job out? Job's a righteous guy, he fears God. Why would he bring Job to Satan's attention? But remember that perspective. Who God is, he's all-knowing. And he already knows that Satan has considered Job. This isn't new information to Job, or to Satan. He knows perfectly well who Job is. And so Satan goes on to tell him, well, yeah, I've considered Job, but you've given him so much. You've blessed him so much. He has so much. What could I do to him? He praises your name because he's so blessed. But if you took away everything he had, if you took away all his possessions and all that he cares deeply for, he would curse you then if you took it all away. And so God says to Satan, all he has is in your power. Do as you wish, but you may not touch the man. And so we're told that Satan leaves God's presence. And later we're told that one day, while Job was sitting in his home, a servant came rushing in and said that there were marauders that had come in and they had taken away and killed his servants and taken away his livestock. And while he was talking to that servant, another servant came in and said there were fire that came down from heaven and it destroyed his sheep and his servants. And while they were talking, another servant came in and said that other marauders had come in and taken the rest of his livestock and devastated everything that Job had. And while he was speaking, we're told, another messenger came in, and another messenger came and said, your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert, struck the four corners of the house, it collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you this. At this, Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head, then fell down to the ground and worshipped. It was at this news, the news of his children being killed, that broke Job. He was told everything else had been lost, but it was at the news of his children that Job stood up, tore his robe, signifying to everyone the grief the heart-wrenching grief that he had experienced at that news. And he shaves his head to tell everybody who was watching the sorrow that he's experiencing, the mourning that he's in. The pain was real. And in the midst of that pain, we're told that Job bows his head to the ground and worships and says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And we're told in all this, Job did not sin. Job, in the midst of pain and suffering, some of the deepest pain he'd ever experienced, the loss of his children, Job still remembered who God was. And through Job's praise, he tells us who God is. 
God is still on his throne. God is still God. The circumstances of my life do not change the fact that God is still God and he is good. He says, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Remember the thing I said about Job's perspective? Job has a perspective that God is the one that has given to him and God is the one that has taken away. When we see clearly from the story what Job doesn't see, it is not God that has taken those things away, but yet it was Satan who took those things away. Job was mistaken. But we see that that mistake wasn't sin. He was just mistaken. There were things that Job had yet to learn. And so we turn to chapter 2. Another day, God is on his throne. The angels come before God, and Satan himself is with them again. And God asks Satan what, is he, what he's doing, and it's the same answer, roaming back and forth in the earth. And once again, God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him in all the land. You have afflicted him, and yet he still praises me. And Satan says, well, yeah, I took away all his stuff. But if you afflicted the man, if you made him sick, if you hurt him, then he would curse you. And God says, very well. He is under your power, except you may not kill him. You may touch him, but you may not kill him. And Satan leaves God's presence, and we're told that he goes to earth, and that he afflicts Job with boils, sores on his body, from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head. Painful boils. And we're told that as Job experiences this, he takes a broken pot, broken clay, and he scrapes his skin, scrapes away the boils on his skin. Can you imagine taking one of your pots, breaking it, and taking that sharp edge and just scraping these sores? They said he would have done this to relieve the itching and to open up the wounds and to try to remove these boils. And then we're told he sits down in ash as a testimony to all who would see the great pain that he's in. We see from Job that pain is real and that he's experiencing it very acutely at this moment. Pain is real. Then we see that his wife comes to him. His wife comes to him and says to him, when are you going to give this up? When are you going to give this up, this whole God thing? When are you going to start just curse God and die? That would be the smart thing to do. I mean, look at your life. Look at what's been taken away from you. Look at what's happening to you now. How can you say and maintain that God is good and that he cares for you? The wise thing, the smart thing to do would be to curse God and die. And Job says to him, says to her, you foolish woman, shall we accept good from God and not the bad? Job's reminding us that God is the giver of all good things. Do we, do we question God when we're blessed? Do we look to God and say, why am I so blessed? Why have you given me all these things? I don't understand it. But when we're afflicted and when we're, we're experiencing pain and suffering, 
we want answers. In the good, we just assume we deserved it. It's because I'm a good person. That's why. We don't question that. Why is that? Because we don't remember that just the air in our lungs is testimony to the fact that God is good and that all good things come from him. But we also see that the bad doesn't. And we see from Job's life that having the answer to that isn't the answer to hope. That God being God is why Job has hope. He understands who God is, what God has done for him his entire life. He's the man in the East. And he knows it's not because of him, but because of who God is and what God has given him. He's not lost sight of his true identity. Therefore, he's not lost sight of who God is. He may not completely understand what's going on, but he understands the main thing, and that's God is good, and he is God. And we're told in all of this, Job does not sin in what he said. Job does not sin in what he did. He might have a wrong picture, wrong understanding of why things are happening to him because he doesn't have all the answers, but he's never lost sight to who God is, and he does not charge God with evil. He does not blame God. We see Job has a perspective of God that very few in his time had, but God used Job to testify to the people of us to his family, and to his friends. God used Job to bless those around him. Job had this unique perspective, and we're given another glimpse of it a little bit later in Job. In chapter 19, Job himself says this, I know that my Redeemer lives, that in the end, he will stand on this earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, after I have died, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Job knew supernaturally, given that knowledge by the Spirit. Remember, 2 Peter tells us that prophets don't speak on their own accord. They speak only as they've been carried along by the Spirit. Here Job is prophesying that there'll be a day where someone will come, where God himself will walk upon this earth. And he will make all things right. He will be my redeemer. He will be my advocate. He will have the last word. What I'm experiencing right now will end. He will come, and I will see him. And he will make all things new. Job understood who God was. He didn't have all the answers, but he didn't need all the answers. Because hope was not in all the answers. Hope rests clearly only on the nature of God. And God is good, and God is trustworthy. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Now, I know when we read Job, we struggle. I struggle. It's an ancient story about a guy I never knew but about a guy in a distant land at a time where I don't really understand everything that's going on. 
And sometimes I think it can be hard to relate to Job or to think that Job can relate to us. And so I think it would be profitable throughout this series to bring in another perspective. And so I thought I would bring in the perspective of a friend of mine who I think has a clear perspective, a more modern-day perspective, a personal perspective that we could appreciate. And so the friend I'm going to ask throughout this series to come and give us his perspective, his name is Scott Thomas. Scott was a pastor here at Trinity. And it was seven years ago that Scott lost his life after a four-month battle with cancer. And Scott blogged throughout that four months about his struggle in the hope that the people listening and reading his blog could find hope in the midst of that suffering. Scott saw his ministry, saw his ministry not ending when cancer struck, but an opportunity with the weightiness of his suffering to help others going through the same thing. For those of you that don't know Scott, he used to be a radio personality on WYLL in the afternoon in the drive time. And he says he wrote this blog so that people could hear what God had to say. And he would use this blog as a platform to keep preaching God's word. In fact, we're, we know that over 30,000 visits to his blog over those four months. Scott said if that many people followed him when he was on the radio, he'd still be on the radio. <laughs> but I had people from all around the world listening to his blog. I had a friend in Phoenix who was suffering from cancer and read his blog daily and found hope and peace and comfort in his words. And my hope is that you, as we journey through this, will hear his words. You could find hope and peace because that would be Scott's dream for you. So today I thought I would read to you from this book. A friend of his put together a compilation of those stories and those blog, those blog posts. And this post is from February the 3rd, 2012, and it's titled God's Will. He says, as I, every day, continue to desire to know God better, I also yearn to know and understand his will better. We always hear or use the phrase, God's will. God's will be done. Regardless of the outcome, it's God's will. We trust in God's will because he's proven to be trustworthy throughout history. But is everything that happens really God's will? I bring this up because while I trust in God's will to get me through this temporary battle with cancer... I do not believe it was or is God's will for me to be stricken with the disease. His word says every good and perfect thing comes from him, from his will. God is good, period. And so, and so is his will. Cancer is evil, and it's most evil. If I understand what God reveals in his word, there is no way that my good and perfect God willed me to have cancer. God's will is not for me to be sick. God's will is not for my family to be turned on its ear. That's just not how God works. I believe it's stinking thinking to believe it is. While it is clearly not God's will for me to be sick, he did allow this sickness to happen and therefore caused me to trust in nobody else, nothing else but God and his perfect will to deliver me and my family through this according to his will. All the while, he also promises that his good and perfect will does prevail. It may sound like a bit of theological, like a theological fine point, but I believe there's a huge difference between saying it's God's will for Scott to have cancer and God allowed Scott to get cancer. God's will be done. And I believe there's a huge difference between the sort of secular expressions, well, I know all things happen for a reason, and the biblical one, 
We know in all things God is working for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. It's a time of struggle. Even as strength is returning, blood levels are good and faith is strong. We can place our hope, our faith, in the good and perfect will of God, and we can do so confidently. Love, Scott, Diane, Becky, and Michelle. What Scott knew, what Job knew, was that the circumstances of their lives did not, did not diminish the love of God and how trustworthy God is. That the circumstances of their life did not take away their faith, but strengthen their faith in God. What Scott knew that Job didn't know, know is that Scott got a view of that Redeemer. Scott had an Easter perspective that Job didn't have. Job saw at a distance and trusted in. Scott believed in that Easter perspective. That Easter perspective changed everything. And his hope for you is that you could have that same perspective. In the midst of your pain and suffering, as you're encouraging others that you love and care for deeply that are experiencing pain and suffering, that there is hope because God is good. And this disease, this sickness, this time is not God's will. He did not give your loved one cancer. He did not strike down your child. Satan did that. But in all those things, God is working for good. God has worked for good through Job. Job was never given the reason why. But he didn't need it. Because he knew who God was. How unfair it would have been for him to tell Job and not us. For those that are seeking answers as to why, we can find hope in Job because Job was never given the answer why. But yet Job never lost hope because God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Scott never lost hope. This was Scott's third battle with cancer, not the first. He had an Easter perspective that all things are being made new and that Jesus came to die and suffer the death that none of us could experience so that one day all pain and all suffering could be put to an end. One day it will all come to an end and there will be no more pain. There will be no suffering. For those who believe in him, there's a time limit. God says to us this morning, there is hope in the midst of suffering because I am with you and because I am God. Amen.